to me, it's one of the most hopeful passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. It talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at some other scripture that ties the miracles that, that we anticipate in our lives, the things that we trust God to do in our life, to the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. The power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that we're calling on when we're asking for physical healing or when we're asking to see God come in to do a miracle in a in a seemingly impossible situation and restore broken relationships. When we put our hope in what the Lord does, what we're really putting our hope in is what God the Father did when he raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus said in John 15 that we have a calling in our life and that if we've answered that call and that we're willing to go out and and do the, the things that the Lord has asked us to do, that he will give us all things we ask for in his name. Everything. I mean, that's pretty wide open promise, but it's God the Father through the power of the Spirit doing the things in our life as we pray in the authority that Jesus gave us to say, hey, Father, would you do this for me? Your son Jesus said I could ask. And so there's this relationship that we have with God the Father who is all-powerful and who through the power of his Spirit brought Jesus back from the dead. You know, um, a, a long time ago, it's, it's kind of a famous thing, uh, a famous British uh, agnostic said, let's confine the discussion to the resurrection. In other words, he was anti-Christian. Let's confine the discussion to the resurrection because if the resurrection happened, then we have to take seriously all the miracles that are in the Bible and the possibility of miracles in our life. But if the resurrection did not happen and we can disprove and discredit the resurrection, then none of the other stuff has any meaning whatsoever. If you really stop and think about it, I, I think there's a lot of people who are Christians, they, they believe in God, and, and they, they'll come to church and they hear about Jesus' death on the cross and they understand the transaction that takes place, that I have guilt in my life and God came to rescue me and to be able to forgive me for my guilt. His son paid a price that I don't quite understand on that cross, the, the righteous son of God, dying for unrighteous people like me. You know, I, I stood in a courtroom once when I was 17 years old, and the policeman who wrote the ticket stood there and defended me in front of the judge. How's that? Uh, that's about as close as I can get in personal experience to what went on in terms of, the, of, of Jesus coming and dying for us and raising from the dead. And, you know, as, as you, 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 if you don't really think it through, you can sign, sort of find yourself being a Christian who believes in the Lord and believes in his grace, and believes in his power, and yet doesn't believe some of the stuff in the Bible, like the virgin birth, or the, or the, or the miracle, the resurrection. You just kind of skate over that stuff because it's a little bit hard for you to gather. And, and, and you know, we, we really need to engage the, 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 the key passage in the Old Testament that talks about Jesus coming and being our Savior, written 600 years before he came, is Isaiah chapter 53. And it describes a person who is born, who is hard to look upon. What could that possibly mean? Ugly. <laughs> who is tempted and, te I'm serious, who is tempted and tested in, in all the ways that we are as humans. He is treated spitefully. He's rejected by his own people. He is killed. And then it goes on to talk about him after he's killed, he's alive. 
And then it talks about him having many, 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 many followers. That's basically Isaiah 53. Look at the end of chapter 52 and all of 53. And it's a, it's a prophecy of Jesus coming to this world, of his death, his burial, his resurrection, and of, get this, because this is a miracle. You know, sometimes you don't think of it as a miracle. I, I went to Israel uh, last October, and I'd never been there in my life. I, I used to have a travel agent trying to always pay my way to come to Israel. And it was in the late 1970s and early 1980s when I was getting ready to come over here and start the church. And, and my focus was on Hawaii. I didn't want to go to Israel. And so I just you know, said no to free trips year after year after year. I, I wouldn't go. And, and so finally last year I went to Israel and everybody asked me, what's the greatest thing that you saw in Israel? What's the, what's the, you know, what, what impressed you the most? Because, you know, you go to all these sites and, and basically they, they know where Peter, remember Peter's wife's mother was sick of a fever and Jesus healed her? They know which is her house. We went there and saw the thing. And you go to the garden tomb and, and the guys go, well, we don't know if this is really the garden tomb. But when they get done explaining why it could be, you go, I think it is, you know. But when I went to Israel, the thing that, that impressed me the most was Israel. Because I read in Isaiah 61 about God after 2,000 years, think about it, bringing these people back and, and restoring them to this land and prospering them hugely. And, you know, the, the massive military strength, strong economy. I, I just read a book called Startup Nation about Israel. And, and, it, and it said in there, in the last 10 years, Israel has won 7,500 high-tech patents. Egypt, which is about 80 times larger than Israel or something, had 17. And you, you, you go, these people made the desert bloom. It's, it's amazing. To me, the fact that that scripture in the Old Testament is fulfilled in modern Israel is a mind-blower. I found Tel Aviv, the modern city of Tel Aviv that just arose from the flat deadness of the desert, to be more miraculous than Jerusalem. I was just blown away because God did what he said he was going to do over thousands of years. Well, if you stop and think about the Christian church was prophesied about in Isaiah chapter 53, the last five or six verses, or, or it doesn't say Christian church, but that's what it's talking about. And here's this struggling little group of people. There's 120 of them on the day of Pentecost. That's basically what was left after Jesus ascended into heaven, 120 people. And they're persecuted, they're killed, they're hounded. You know, there's a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you read about the incredible um, ingenuity of the Romans for killing Christians, the horrible things that they did, and the, and the, and the, the torturous things they dreamed up for killing these people. And, and yet today, a third of the population of the planet worships Jesus as Lord. The fact of the Christian church, in spite of all the persecution, all by itself is a miracle that ought to cause us to go, whoa. But when you stop and look at the Christian church, here's what happens. When you look at the early, early history of the church, it's all about two things. It's about resurrection and miracles. And, as, as you, and you can't really separate the two. But it's about the people believing that God will heal them. God will drive out evil spirits that are making them crazy. And God will do all these things because of the fact that he rose Jesus from the dead. And if he did that, he could do this. Are you with me? But as you talk about it, and you come back to this British guy and his attack on the resurrection. If you can destroy the resurrection, you can destroy Christianity. He's absolutely right. But if you stop and look at all of the arguments that have ever been given against the resurrection, they boil down to three. Just three. 
The first is that Jesus never really died, that he was traumatized by the crucifixion, but somehow he lived through it. And, you know, I mean, the, the crown of thorns alone would sort of mess you up. Uh, he's beaten up by these soldiers, pounded in the face, the Bible says. He's beaten with a Roman cat of nine tails 39 times. Uh, they, they said that people would normally, so much muscle is torn off your back that you never walk again if you went through that whole thing. Then nails are driven in his hands and his feet, and they were good at this thing. Uh, you were crossed over your feet like this, one nail driven through both feet. And you're left to hang, and they say that in crucifixion, you didn't die from bleeding to death. How you died in crucifixion was from, uh, you, 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 you suffocated. You finally, your diaphragm, because the way you had to be able to push yourself up with your legs to get some air into your lungs, and when your legs finally gave away and cramped out, then you're, you, you just sink down and you can't even suck air, and, and you die this horrible, horrible death. And somehow he lives through this whole thing, and they put him in the cool air of the tomb. And the tomb revives him. The cool air of the tomb revives him. Except what are we all taught ever since we were in third grade that if something bad happens to somebody and they're in shock, what do you do? What's the first thing you do? Keep them warm. Because if they get cold, they're going to die. Cool air isn't going to heal a guy who has been crucified. Cool air is going to kill a guy who's been crucified. The second theory that is there is that the disciples stole the body. And they hid it someplace, and they said, well, he rose from the dead. Well, if they stole the body and they said he rose from the dead, how come nobody copped to it? How come all of these people were killed rather than say, I know where the body is. I can take you there. I want to live another day. And these people, every one of his disciples except for John, who died as a prisoner on an island called Patmos, probably breaking rocks out there. Every one of them died a martyr's death. They were killed in some very creative ways, and they died because they believed that they had seen, talked with, eaten food with Jesus after he had been crucified, and three days later he rose from the dead. The third argument, and there really are only three. You sit around, I defy you. Go home tonight and think of a fourth. There's so many people in, in history who are the major sort of defenders of the faith. You know, I mean, a, a lot of people are, have been strong Christian leaders and whatever, but there's people who they've devoted their life to writing stuff about why we know that this is true. And, and, and so many of those people who have been major authors, you can read their books and stuff, started out, they were attacking Christianity, and they were going to seek to ultimately disprove it. And in their process of, of, of disproof, they came around and said, there's only one answer, and that's that he rose from the dead. There's only one thing that's a possibility. The, the, the third answer is that everybody hallucinated. And we don't know what they were smoking. But, you know, when, when, when people are, maybe they are, you know, and uh, they, 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 you know, because I used to know a lot of people who had hallucinated. Uh, in the early days of our church, there were a lot of people who knew a lot about things that make you hallucinate, you know. And they were dropping acid, and they were doing all this, and they were doing all that. But, but for everybody to hallucinate in the group is a possibility. We can do a seance kind of a deal, turn the lights down low, and get the music going, and all of a sudden flash a light in the room someplace, or something happens, a little shadow across the wall. Did you see it? And everybody, oh, yeah, I saw it, I saw it. 
And, and, and we can psych ourselves up, but that's not what happened. These people saw Jesus in groups of two, groups of three, one, 12 together, little bits. Of, the Bible says, that we're going to read it later, over 500 people saw him alive after he's dead. They weren't all in one place at the same time. So you don't get this mass psychosis thing going on. The other thing is, if you are token on something and you, and you hallucinate, you tend to not see what the other guy saw. You understand? It makes my point. And so when, when you come to, to this passage, it's an incredible passage of Scripture. We're going to read it real fast because I already preached the sermon, so now you're going to read the Scripture. <laughs> but as, as we get into this, um, there, there, there's the, the, the power of God to forgive us is at stake here. The power of God to heal us is at stake here. The power of God to give us hope for a better future in our, in our lives and our family is at stake here. If this thing didn't happen, then none of it happened. And so as Paul writes to the Corinthian church, uh, he's writing about foundational truth. And apparently some of the brothers and sisters in Corinth had come around to a point where, you know, because we do know that the early Christians thought that the the second coming of Christ was going to happen like five minutes from now. They all thought that. And you you, you can get that out of the Bible. You certainly get that out of secular history. Uh, and, And when Jesus hadn't come for a while... And people started to have their doubts. And so apparently people are doubting the very fact of the resurrection. And Paul writes to them in chapter 15, verse 1. Now let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. In other words, this good news saves you unless I'm a liar and I told you something that wasn't true in the first place. Verse 3, I passed on to you what was most important and what had been passed on to me. And here it is. Christ died for our sins just as the Scriptures said, and you, you could write in your margin of your Bible the words, He would. He died for our sins just as the Scriptures said He would. Because He's not talking about the New Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament that was finished 370 years before Christ, and so it was all prophecy. Christ died for our sins just as the Scripture said He would. He was buried, and He was raised from the dead on the third day. If you've got a pen, write in the margin of your Bible, Isaiah chapter 53, the whole thing, because that gives you the whole deal. He was buried, and He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the Scripture said He would do. He was seen by Peter, and then by the twelve, And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time. And then he says this, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. In other words, you can go out and ask these people about their experience having seen Jesus. So we read in the Gospels the experience of the apostles having seen Jesus. You know, Thomas is in the room. Everybody else says they've seen Jesus, and, and and, and they're all thrilled about it. Uh, he's alive after he was dead. And Thomas goes, hey, unless I can poke my fingers in the holes in his hands, and in the hole in his side, it was this side, I think, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll not believe. All of a sudden, Jesus shows up in the room. You know? And, 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 and these guys are freaked out by it. So you can go talk to these people. Go interview them. Go ask them. They're eyewitnesses of these events. He was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. And what's significant about James is the James he's talking about there 
was the physical half-brother of Jesus. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas were his half-brothers, the children of Joseph and Mary. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And James was an unbeliever. In fact, as Jesus was readying to go to Jerusalem uh, at the last Passover after which he would be crucified, his brothers are mocking him and, and, and giving him gas about it. So James was not a believer while Jesus was out preaching around. James became a believer afterwards, and it tells us here why he became a believer, because he saw Jesus alive after he was dead. What you know if you read the book of Acts is this guy James, not, the, not James, the, you know, Peter, James, and John James, but James, the brother of Jesus, became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Read Acts chapter 15. James and the others made this decision. And so what caused James to become a Christian? The resurrection. It says he was seen by all the apostles. Verse 8, last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him, for I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way that I persecuted God's church. One of the great miracles of Christianity is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who was out killing Christians and imprisoning them and was on his way to Damascus in Syria to gather a bunch of people and bring them back to Jerusalem and put them on trial. And he has this weird experience. A bright light flashes out of heaven. A loud voice booms out of heaven. It says the people around him uh, fell to the ground by, because of the thing, but they didn't understand the voice. He understood the voice, and the voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's answer, and I think it kind of went like this, Who are you, sir? And he goes, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Go into Damascus. Go to this place. It'll be shown you there what is required of you. He goes into Damascus. He's blind. One, one place in Scripture, he describes it in two different places. He describes it. One place, he says he fell. One place, he says he, he fell off his horse. He's sitting in the dirt, blind. He goes into this place, and, and there's a guy named Ananias. Ananias has a vision in the vision, the Lord comes to him and says, Ananias, go over to the street called Straight, Straight Street. And there's a guy there named Saul from Tarsus, and he's blind, and I've chosen him to do a special work. I want you to go pray and lay your hands on him, and I'm going to heal him. And Ananias, it actually tells about it in the book of Acts, says, I don't want to go over there because he came here to rest people like me, and if I pray and you heal him, he's going to see me first. So I ain't going. And the Lord goes, no, it's okay, don't sweat it, I got him. And so the conversion of Saul, it's, it's a hard thing to explain away. I mean, you just stop and think about it. It's just a little detail, but it's a huge detail because we wouldn't be sitting in this room if it hadn't been for Saul of Tarsus, the greatest persecutor of the church, becoming the greatest ambassador of the church in his day. Am I making sense? You know, I don't want to go down a side path tonight because I really am running short on time. Uh, but if, you know, when I go out and teach pastors and stuff I do around the world, one of the things that I always challenge them about is, why is it called the Acts of the Apostles? Because when you read the Acts of the Apostles, uh, Peter, James, and John, right, the big three, the ones that are closest to Jesus, uh, Peter is, is found in 11 chapters of Acts. Uh, James is found in three chapters of Acts, and John is found in four chapters of Acts. Saul, Paul, Saul whose name became Paul, the persecutor of the church who became the ambassador of the church, the, the, 
the apostle. The word apostle means one sent out with a message. That person shows up in 21 out of 28 chapters of Acts. You know, it wasn't called the Acts of the Apostles. Luke didn't write the Acts of the Apostles and then start writing. He just wrote a letter to a guy named Theophilus, which means lover of God, and said this is the stuff that happened. And three-quarters of it is about this one guy. If if you're going to name it, because they named it a couple centuries later, they should have called it the Acts of the Apostle. And you've got to be able to figure out what happened to this one guy who hated the church so bad, and boom, you know. And you know what? You could probably come up with an explanation for Saul's conversion, and you could say maybe he, he hallucinated. But we know that they didn't know about marijuana and stuff like that in those days. Something happened to him. You've got to explain away the soldiers hearing the booming voice from heaven. You've got to explain away the blindness and the healing. You've got all this stuff to, 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 something happened that transformed this man to the point that he ended up losing his life for his message. But he went on this massive campaign that took the rest of his life. And, I mean, he was the, the, the jet setter of his day. He traveled places where nobody had traveled. Distance-wise, people couldn't travel. You didn't travel 40 miles from your house in those days. This guy's all over the world with the gospel. There, some people believe, I don't believe it, but some historians actually believe that Paul preached in England. We know that in the end of the book of Romans, he tells the Roman church in Italy, I'm hoping to come visit you on my way to Spain. Did you know Spain's in the Bible? Uh, in, in the last chapter of Romans, I'm, 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 I'm hoping to come while I go on my way to Spain. He's all over the joint. And uh, in massive change in the world because of this one man. Why? Because he saw Jesus alive after he's dead. So he goes on, he says, in verse 8, last of all, as though I'd been born at the wrong time, I also saw him, for I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. But whatever I am now is all because God poured out his special favor on me and not without results. For I've worked harder than any of the other apostles. He says that without bragging, he just says it. Yet it was not I, but God who was working through me by his grace. So it makes no difference whether I preach or they preach, for we all preach the same message that you've already believed. And what is that message? That Jesus came to die for our sins, but he came to do more than that. God raised him from the dead, and the power that happened to raise him from the dead is available to us when we pray. Verse 12, nothing really works without this. He says, tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ isn't raised from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. I mean, he really puts it down here, black and white. You're either in or you're out. Either you, you, you believe and, and, and it, it's got value, or it doesn't, and throw it all away. In verse 15, he says, and we apostles would be lying about God. If, it, if the resurrection didn't happen, then we apostles would be lying about God. Now, stop and think about this, the possibility because this, this is another angle of thought that people have had down through the centuries. The possibility that this whole thing is built on a lie. That Jesus is a liar because he said he was going to resurrect from the dead and that the apostles were all liars. And you may not know it, but the public school system that we have in America was actually born out of churches educating people. The hospitals that we have in America, think how many of them, the, the name of the hospital begins with the word saint. 
the schools that we have in, in, in America, uh, SMU, Southern Methodist University, U, uh, University of Southern California, a Methodist school, John Harvard University, which was intended to train up young men for the ministry, Yale University, Princeton University. I mean, the, 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 the good that has been done in the name of Jesus, all the orphanages, all the stuff that's going on in Sendai right now, all the stuff that's going on, somebody, uh, they're talking about Operation Christmas Child, and they gave me a DVD tonight to watch about Mongolia and how uh, physicians in the United States are treating kids that actually some need heart replacement for free. And, and people are shipping these kids out of Mongolia, which is the ends of the earth, I'm here to tell you. And I get to go again next week, next, next June, and I'm thrilled about it. But they're, 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 they're bringing them, all this good doesn't come out of a lie. Good comes out of truth. Good comes out of reality, not some fakey unreality. Good is good. So he says, tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are you, some of you saying there'll be no resurrection of the dead? For if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, and all of our preaching is useless, your faith is useless, and we apostles would be lying about God. For we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection from the dead. And if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ hasn't been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, then we're to be pitied more than anybody else in the world. I mean, how many of you paid your tithe tonight? You poor suckers. You invested in nothing. I mean, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then us coming here to church... All the labor that we put in when we built this property, all of us volunteering hundreds and hundreds of hours, psh, useless. My life is a total waste. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, I wanted to be an architect. I was dragged into being a pastor. And I should have been an architect because if Christ didn't, didn't raise from the dead, then, then I just wasted my whole life. Paul's saying, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, I'm a liar and I wasted my life. That's what he's actually saying. I mean, you got it, it, this guy is into this. It says, if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection of the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. He was the first fruits. We're coming after him. Verse 24, after that, the end will come when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power, for Christ must reign until he humbles all of his enemies beneath his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, that little two verses there could get us into all kind of stuff about Bible prophecy in the last days, and I'm not going there because I don't have time. It says, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For the Scriptures say God has put all things under His, Jesus' authority. Of course, when it says all things are under His authority, that does not include God Himself who gave Christ His authority. 
Then when all things are under his authority, the Son will put himself under God's authority so that God, who gave his Son authority over all things, will be utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. And that's where we're going eventually as God comes out to rule over everywhere. You know, when Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, what he was really aiming for was all the nations coming to a point where they honored the Lord. And we go from there. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 would be a good scripture to write in the margin of your Bible. And I'm just going to read it. It says, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power that's available for us who believe in him. I'm praying that you figure out how much power is available to you when you pray. And then it says, this is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. It ties together your prayers being answered to the power that God used to do the miracle of miracles, the resurrection of the dead. Verse 11 of Romans chapter 8 says, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. That's why when you became a believer in Jesus, your life began to change and, and the crud, you started to, to, to hate the stuff you used to like. And, you know, the, to me, the first miracle of, of, of a person becoming a Christian, uh, I mean, I, I know some people, I, I, I saw two different times, uh, only two, uh, but way back in the Jesus Movement revival, two different times I saw people come to church loaded on heroin. I know one guy was really under because he slept across the back pew and snored while I preached. And we prayed for him, and he was stone sober like that. Boom. That's, a, that's powerful. But that doesn't happen very often. What usually happens, usually the first great miracle of Christ in a person's life is that things that they were into before that were destroying them, they suddenly were very uncomfortable with it, and they felt convicted about it, and they, and they begin to pray, God, take this out of my life. Stuff I, before they would have defended with their life, now they're going, God, take this out of my life. It may be alcohol. It may be wanton sexual whatevers. It, it, it may be whatever it is. But did you come to the point where you're going, Lord, set me free from this thing. I don't want to be this person anymore. That's a miracle that happens inside of people's hearts and minds. Am I making sense when I say this? And so uh, it, it's, it's the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead that lives in you. And, and that spirit changes you. It changes your heart. It changes your attitude. He changes the way that you think. He changes your prayer life. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living in you. It's a promise that we will resurrect from the dead. Verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 15. For if the dead will not be raised, what point is there in people being baptized for those who are dead? Why do it unless the dead will someday rise again? Now, this is an interesting verse of scripture that has a lot of confusion attached to it. People being baptized for the dead. The Mormon church baptizes people for in, in sort of like you get baptized on behalf of somebody who died 30 years ago or whatever. And uh, uh, they, they, but, but one of the rules that we have of Bible interpretation is if there's something that's a doctrine, it's true, that we see in the New Testament, first it has to be mentioned at least two times, not just one. And second, it has to be something that is proposed to us in the Gospels and in the book of Acts and in the epistles of Paul. We read this one verse about this, and what we really believe is that people in the Corinthian church were mistakenly baptizing people on behalf of dead people. 
So Paul's not endorsing what they're doing, but he's appealing to their weird thing and saying, why, why would you even do this? If there was no resurrection from the dead, why did you waste your time doing what you just did? And so he's not endorsing it. He's acknowledging the fact that they're doing it. Does that make sense when I say that? And so he goes on from there. And then verse 30 says, And why should we risk our lives hour by hour? He's talking about himself. For I swear, dear brothers and sisters, that I face death daily. This is as certain as my pride in what Christ Jesus our Lord has done in you. And what value was there in fighting wild beasts, those people at Ephesus, if there will be no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection, then let's just feast and drink for tomorrow we die. Uh, Let's just... You know, party hardy, because tomorrow we're going to die. Verse 33 says, Don't be fooled by those who say such things, for bad company corrupts good character. Think carefully about what is right and stop sinning. For to your shame I say that some of you don't know God at all. There's some of you that are in church, and you never really hooked up, and you're not really uh, cooking with the Lord, and you need to get there. Well, he goes on and says, But someone will ask, How will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? And then he answers, what a foolish question. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. So how can the dead be be raised? Well, think about a a piece of wheat or corn or an apple seed. It's got to go in the ground and go through this transformation where, I mean, it kind of rots. And the, the, the hull comes off of it, and then, boop, life springs up again. And he goes, that's the same with us. We all... The body gets planted in the ground, and then it comes up, and it says, And what you put in the ground is not a plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you're planting. Then God gives it the new body he wants it to have. A different plant grows from each kind of seed. Similarly, there are different kinds of flesh, one kind for humans, another kind for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are also bodies in the heavens and bodies on the earth. The glory of the heavenly bodies is different from the glory of the earthly bodies. The sun has one kind of glory, while the moon and stars each have another kind. If the stars differ from each other in their and the star, even the stars differ from each other in their glory. It is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness. How many times have I sat, stood right here in this auditorium with some casket laid out in front of me? Our bodies are buried in brokenness. There's a loss, there's a pain, there's a grief, and there ought to be. You know, I'm not one of these people that likes to go around at funerals and go, well, smile because, you know, they died, but you're going to see them again in heaven one day. Uh, I, I think that the, the, the appropriate response when somebody dies is grief. You know, it, I, I was just talking to my friend Jamie and uh, she, she just graduated from school in the Army, and she's, she's a medic. And uh, it's just so good to see her back, uh, but it was hard to see her go. And when somebody passes away, it's, you're going to see them one day, but it's hard to see them go. And, 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 you, and you deal with it, you know. So there's the hope of the resurrection, but there's also the reality of the grief. He says, our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They're buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They're buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. Now, I'm, I'm making a connection here that he doesn't forcefully make, and I'm not sure if he makes it at all, but I think it's there. He talks about a corn of wheat 
going in the ground and it comes up. What comes up? You, you plant wheat, what do you get? Apple trees? You get wheat, right? And so he says there's all different kinds of flesh, there's all different kinds of bodies, there's all, you know, whatever. And then, and then he talks about us being buried in the ground and then coming back. It's, it's a natural body, but it comes out a supernatural body. Well, I think that there's going to be a connection between the natural body and the supernatural body. In other words, what is going to be is going to have a, a lot of similarity to what is. It's just going to be a, a body that lives forever. Am I making sense? Because he's talking about the bodily resurrection of all of us who followed after the Lord and, and living with the Lord forever. You know, uh, and again, I'm not going to go down this road, but we all talk about dying and going to heaven. Uh, the Bible, actually, if you read the end of Revelation, talks about heaven coming to us. It talks about a, a city that descends to earth called the New Jerusalem. And, you know, there, you can conjecture a lot about that because the Bible doesn't say very much about it. It just says it. Uh, but what's going to happen is we're going to be given incorruptible, immortal bodies. And I think that we would recognize each other. They're going to be a lot like the ones that we left behind. The scriptures tell us, verse 45, the first man, Adam, became a life-giving person. The last, man, the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. What comes first is the natural body, then the spiritual body comes later. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are, not, are, are like the earthly man, and heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we are now like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. What I'm saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies can, cannot inherit what will last forever. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. What is he saying? He's saying that the last day when the trumpet blows, those who have died in Christ, 1 Thessalonians talks about this at great length, are going to be, you could write that in the margin in your Bible, 1 Thessalonians. It's five chapters. Read the whole thing. That, that people are going to be raised... And I think they're going to, this isn't, the Bible doesn't say this, this is Ralph saying this, okay? You've got to always be, be careful about preachers. When, when are they saying what the Bible says, and when are they saying what they think? And here's one of what I think. I think when the trumpet blows, that those who have died in Christ are going to be raised about six feet. Because it says in Thessalonians, they'll be raised, we'll be transformed, and we will all rise together to meet the Lord in the air. And so... What, what is going to happen is two miracles, the resurrection of the dead and a transformation of the earthly body into an immortal body. And boom, we all go to be with the Lord. And whatever happens after that happens after that. And so it says, verse 54, then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. And it says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Because the sting of death will be taken away from those who have put their hopes in the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of God to bring them to life again. And then it says, For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law, 
religion gets in its power. The more you're told don't do something, the more you want to do it. But thank God, verse 57, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through what happened on the cross, what happens when I ask God for forgiveness, what happens when the Holy Spirit comes into my life, God gives me victory over sin in my life, over the death that that's, that, that sin brings to me, and I'm going to end up living forever with the Lord. God's grace is alive and powerful and real. Then it says in verse 58, and we've got much to gain. Verse 58 says, So my dear brothers and sisters, you be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Be strong and immovable. You know, I remember when I did a funeral many, many years ago. It was one of the first funerals that I had ever done. Uh, I, remember, I remember two funerals. One was my first funeral. And it was a girl who was kind of crazy. She had blown her mind on LSD, and she was really mixed up, really, really mixed up. And she wouldn't shower for days. And she, Her dad was a train driver, engineer on the railroad. And so she got a free rail pass. And she'd just get on a train and go across the country and sit down next to people and try to tell them about Jesus. And, and she mostly babbled. I mean, what she had to say wasn't very sensible. And, uh, and then, sadly, she killed herself. And I stood up at his funeral, and, and um, this family were mostly Jewish people. And I just go, you know, I, I just want to share what she was trying to say. And I want to tell you in a rational way what she said in not a real rational way. And I know that some of you sitting here laughed at her and probably mocked her because she was the way she was. And I know that some people had a hard time sitting down next to her in church because she didn't take a bath often. And, and I know what she used to do on the trains, and some of those people probably had that too, but she meant well. And I want to try and tell and, and, and I'm going to tell you this. I don't understand why the Lord didn't heal her because we prayed a thousand times that he would. But he didn't. And I would just like to tell you on her behalf what she was trying to say. And I, and I told these people about the Lord and and. Uh, something like 17 people prayed with me to receive the Lord that day, the most I've ever seen in a funeral. My first funeral. Young, stupid kid trying to be a preacher. My first funeral. But I remember a funeral that we had about three or four years after that, and there was a, a young man in our church, and he was, he was a young man, but when it's a very young church, he was an elder in our church, and, and uh, he passed away of kidney disease. His name was Gary Dwyer. And I, I, I did this funeral, and, and he knew hundreds and hundreds of people. Our church was full that day. And, and, and it was a blow to us all. We had prayed and prayed and prayed for this guy as he went through this whole process and prayed for the family so much. And uh, His wife eventually moved to Maui and helped start Hope Chapel Kihei. She married another guy from the church. They live in Florida. They've got a real strong life. She and my wife are, are, are close friends. But I remember watching as, as, as guys were leaving that funeral that day. And I thought about this scripture because it says, be strong and immovable. And I'm watching all these people, probably at this time age about 28 to, to 30, maybe or younger, maybe 25 to 30, who are walking out the door of this funeral of somebody that they love dearly. And it's like their jaws are tight. Not in a bad way, in a good way. 
They're just determined. They're going to raise their families the way he raised his family. They're going to live in the hope of seeing him one day again. They're going to stand for what he stood for because he stood well for what he stood for. And there was this thing about, I, I can only describe it later, it looked like everybody was a brick. You know, uh, 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 think about a brick. It, does, it doesn't do anything, but it does a whole lot, right? A, a, a brick doesn't move around a lot, but it's, it's steady, it's immovable, and it holds a lot of weight. And then you got these people that, that suddenly are they're like a brick in God's kingdom. And it says here, my dear brothers and sisters, you be strong and immovable. In other words, you let your faith do something real in you. And always work enthusiastically for the Lord. You know, Augie got up here and prayed for communion tonight. And, and he, 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 he was embarrassed to be in church because he had been, uh, he was all sweaty and dirty. He'd been working all day, cleaning glasses that you guys have donated that are going to go to Africa in a few weeks. And he's out there today all day cleaning hundreds of pairs of glasses. And he didn't get time to go home and take a shower before he came up here to have to talk about communion. It rattled him. It rattled him. We talked in the back. It rattled him. But it says, always work enthusiastically for the Lord. Well, that's, that's, that's Augie. That's a whole bunch of you. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord. And it says, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Nothing you do for the Lord's every Why? Because if he's got the power to raise Jesus from the dead and power to raise us from the dead, he's got the power to do everything in between. Is that good? There's one last scripture I want to just leave you with. You might want to write this in the Bible in Romans in Corinthians 15 there. And it's Philippians chapter 121, where it says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that, those words can only be true if we're anticipating resurrecting and living with the Lord throughout eternity. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If there is no resurrection, then for me to live might be Christ and to die is a loss. But for, if there is a resurrection, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm going to be better off when I go to be with him. Are we making sense? Well, let's pray together. And tonight I'd like for you to do what we'd sometimes do. I'll say some words and then you say them after me. And we'll pray together that way. Dear God, let's try that again. Dear God, thank you that you blasted your son out of that grave. And that you energized his corpse and gave it new life. And that because of that, your church has prevailed throughout history. And I thank you that I am a part of your church, your kingdom in this earth. And that my heritage goes back to the apostles and their eyewitness accounts of your resurrection. Thank you for all of this. And I pray that I will stand firm, steadfast, unmovable, that I will serve the Lord with joy, with gladness, expecting your victory. 
your ultimate victory, your victory over death. Thank you that I know you and that you know me and that you love me. I love you back. In Jesus' name. Keep your eyes closed for a moment. I know I've talked for quite a little while tonight, but I just want to take a, a couple more minutes. And if you're sitting here and you are not already a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, I can only conclude that you are probably here because you're interested in what God has to offer you. And here's what God has to offer you. More than eternal life, he has to offer you a full life in this world, a healthy life, healing where there is destruction, peace where there's chaos, grace where there's hardness, kindness and mercy. God wants to bring it all your way. But you need to come to a point where you go, Lord, Forgive me for turning my back on you. I want to live with you the rest of my life. That's the prayer. And I would like to lead you in a prayer to say that. We're going to do what we just did. I'll pray, but I'll, I'll be the only one praying out loud. As I pray out loud, I want you to join my prayer, but you pray silently. But you do the same as we just did. You hitchhike on my words. And if you would like to pray and invite the Lord to become the leader of your life, because that's really what it's about. And accept what Jesus did for you on that cross so that your shame and your guilt could pass away and, and, the, and, the, and the rotten bad habits in your life could be done with. Then I want you to tell me that we're going to pray together because I don't want to just stand up here and talk. If you're going to pray with me, I want you to tell me that we're praying together. And the way I want you to do this, all the people around you got their eyes closed, but I'm looking. Is I'm going to count to three, and when I hit three, I want you just to raise your hand up so I see it. I know we're praying together. So let's do it. One, two, three. I see one man with his hand up. Who else? Another lady with her hand up. In the back, very good. Okay, let's pray together. Again, you pray silently. God, I'm coming to you tonight. Uh, to just confess that I know I need you in my life. And I, I feel like in coming to you, I'm coming home to a father that has always loved me, but I never really paid much attention to. And so I pray that you would come into my life, that your Holy Spirit would do something that I don't really even understand, but that you would come and live inside of me. The Bible says that, I, that my body can become a temple of the Spirit of God. Let that happen, that you would come and reside in me and residing in me that you would communicate with me, that you'd show me things that, that I should avoid. You'd show me things that I should reach for in my life. You'd help me to make wise choices with my life. God, there's things in, in, my, in my experience that have hurt me badly. I pray for healing. I pray for deliverance. I pray for peace where there's chaos. I pray, Lord, that you'll help me manage this life and it'll turn into something. And I pray that one day I will see you face to face in a resurrected body. Thank you for hearing this prayer. Thank you for answering it. Lord, forgive me for everything I've ever done wrong. I pray it all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.
Thank you all. You've been fun to preach to.